Turn to Zechariah chapter 3 for the reading of God's word this morning. Zechariah is the second last book in the Old Testament, right in front of Malachi. Zechariah chapter 3. Let us ask for God's help before we hear the public reading of Scripture. Our God and Father, on this occasion of the public reading of your word, we thank you that it is still being read in our life, and we still have the grace to hear it and to seek it. But Father, we know we are without help unless you help us. Help us to hear, to, to understand. Help us to believe. Help us to recognize your authority speaking to us here in the word and in the preaching that follows. Oh, Father, bless your people, we ask, by the merits and the mercies and the majesty of Jesus Christ. Bless us, not because we are so prepared to be blessed, but because we are seeking you in the humility of our need. We are terribly dependent, Lord, for this to be of any good for us, that you would come and help us. Help us, Father, we pray, in the name of your Son, through your Holy Spirit. Amen. Zechariah 3, verse 1 through 10. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This is the word of God. Please be seated. It is a scandal among men that God justifies the ungodly. 
it is a scandal because it is an instinct among men that the ungodly should contribute something to their being justified before God. Our instinct is that no sinner should be justified for free. Sinners should have some skin in the game, instinct tells us, before God accepts us as justified. The ungodly should pay down some of their debts of ungodliness before they are allowed to rest their conscience in thinking they are justified with God, at peace with God, accepted by God, loved by God. This is the common way men understand how to get right with God. Pay down some of your ungodliness, and God will pitch in whatever he pitches in, and then you'll be loved, accepted, justified. It is no wonder people are scandalized by what the Bible actually teaches about this. The Bible says God fully and freely justifies sinners by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Here is Romans 4, verse 5, for example. To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, you heard that right. To be counted as righteous before God, with God, you do not work to obtain that status. Not work, but faith. You believe in him who justifies the ungodly. This means God does not justify the godly. God does not justify the godly, which is a scandal to the pride of man. Man wants his contribution to count. He wants receipts. He wants some credit. Man wants God to do with him what man has always been doing his whole life with himself, distinguishing how he is better than other men. Man does not want a God who does not join man in that project. So he imagines a God who will. And he might even use the same name that you use for God. He imagines a God who will recognize him as godly and declare him justified for it. Man wants his God to have the good sense to see that he is not as bad as those other people who definitely need to go to hell. That's the kind of God men naturally want. But scripture says, Romans 4, 5, God justifies the ungodly. He does not justify the godly for there are none. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Romans 3, verse 10, and verse 11, and verse 12. But God does, does justify ungodly people, just like Romans 3, verse 10, 11, and 12. He does justify the ungodly. He comes and works faith into the heart, not because we are ready, but because he is. 
And having created faith in the heart by his spirit, we then cannot but help believe on Jesus Christ as our God and Savior. And immediately we are put in full possession of eternal life and the verdict of God's final judgment comes upon us early. We are justified. Long before the final judgment day, we are justified because of this faith union with Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is a scandal to the instinct of man. What does it mean to be justified? Well, the answer is quite dramatically before us in Zechariah chapter 3. The central action of the entire chapter is the action of God to deal with the filth of Joshua, the high priest. But this is not about dirty laundry, right? This is about the deep stain of sin, both actual and original sin. In the vision that God gives to the prophet Zechariah, the sin-stained garments of Joshua the high priest become the focus of the heavenly courtroom. Joshua is standing there to be judged. Satan is standing there to accuse The angel of the Lord, who is the Lord of the angels, our Lord Jesus, the angel of the Lord is standing there to declare the judgments of God. And at the center of this heavenly scene is the divine action of justification. Carefully note the action. It's so simple, but so profound and so scandalous. Note the action. Something is taken away from the filthy man, And something is given to him. First, Joshua's filth is taken away. This means he is completely forgiven. His guilt is removed. He is pardoned for all his sin. But secondly, notice something is given to Joshua. This is, of course, not the Joshua of Joshua and Caleb fame. This is hundreds of years later. This is Joshua the high priest in the time of Zerubbabel, after the captivity to Babylon. Something is given to this same Joshua. He is given pure vestments, the text says, and a clean turban. I really like the fact that the prophet Zechariah himself says, yeah, give him a clean turban. Zechariah is so grasping what the Lord is doing that he gets in on it and says, let's make sure he gets a clean turban too. And he's given one. Pure vestments, clean turban. This means the righteousness of another priest to whom these vestments belong has been freely given to Joshua. What priest? The promised branch priest of verse 8. Jesus Christ, the coming servant of God, who is called throughout the Old Testament the branch the shoot who grows out of the stump of the felled people of God. Now, to have these pure vestments means Joshua's status is far better than not guilty. Now we're getting close to what is justification. Justification is far better than not guilty, but it must include not guilty. 
Not guilty is what is taken away, but what is given is far better than not guilty. The righteousness of God's own son. Joshua, in possession of these pure vestments, is declared righteous. The righteousness of another has been put upon him, imputed to him, credited to him by the free grace of God. This is justification. Beloved, this is what it means. Something is taken away and something is given. We cannot talk about justification without those two necessary actions of God. Something is taken away, something is given, and God does it. What he takes away is all your sin and your guilt. That means you can look across the table at everybody you went to high school with and not flinch and hide. That means you can look across the table of everybody who you've grown up with and who knows a quarter of the stuff you did. But most importantly, it means you can look across the table at the living God who is your judge and not be in a state of dread fear. He takes away your sin and guilt. You have been forgiven. God has pardoned all your sins on the account of Christ's obedient death. You still sin, yes, but your trespasses are no longer being counted against you. This is justification. But something has also been given. God imputes the righteousness of Christ to you. It is credited to your account, the obedient life of Jesus Christ, which was his fulfilling all divine law on behalf of his people. Beloved, this is the Christian gospel. This is the gospel that got Martin Luther excommunicated and under a death sentence from the Roman Catholic Church after the Diet of Worms. This is the gospel that made Calvin have to climb out his bedroom window through a sheet rope in the middle of the night to escape a death threat that was on his head. This is the Christian gospel of the apostle Paul and Peter. This is the Lord's gospel. So justification is something taken away, and it is something given. Paul puts these two together beautifully in one verse in 1 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God imputes our sin to Christ, taking it away. Thus Christ is crucified and buried like a sinner should be. But he is without sin. But in him, our sin receives its full judicial condemnation in Christ's death. But God also imputes Christ's righteousness to us. As the son of perfect obedience, Christ has been raised up from death. And by imputation, we now possess his standing as righteous, beloved sons of God. Even though we are yet struggling with our sin, we possess the full righteousness of Jesus Christ. As the Heidelberg Catechism says, it's as if we have never sinned. The Catechism goes on to say, it's as if we ourselves had accomplished all the obedience that Christ has accomplished for us. That's justification. 
That's imputed righteousness. And because we possess the same righteousness as the son of glory, we too shall be raised and enter his glory. Luther was always urging people to believe the wonderful truths of this justification. He'd say, learn Christ and him crucified. Learn to praise him and despairing of yourself say, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness just as I am your sin. You have taken upon yourself what is mine and have given to me what is yours. You have taken upon yourself what you were not and have given to me what I was not. Now we might wonder, is it appropriate, is it right to apply God's gracious justifying act of Joshua the high priest to ourselves sitting in this room? Is that how we are to understand the use of scripture? Well, the answer to that question is found in two ways from the text of Zechariah itself. First, we need to understand that the passage we read this morning, chapter 3, is the fourth of eight night visions. All eight visions received by Zechariah get recorded in succession in the first half of this book. They are visions of how God is going to restore his kingdom after the very bitter and long Babylonian captivity. And you probably probably remember that the people of Judah were sent into exile because of their sin and rebellion against God. They were made prisoners and slaves in the land of Babylon, first under Nebuchadnezzar and then under those who succeeded him in power. Well, now, in these eight visions, God is showing his people through Zechariah, his prophet, his sovereign plan for the restoration of the whole world and especially for his people. He shows them how his kingdom will come and upon what his kingdom will be built in the restoration. In fact, the Lord says in the third vision, this is in chapter 2, verse 10, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. So the restoration of the kingdom through the people of Israel will be a gathering of people from all the nations to the Lord who is in the midst of his people, who will tabernacle among them. Now, our text today, as I said, is the fourth vision of the eight, which means that it, along with the third in the end of chapter two, is at the center of the eight. Now, the way Hebrew writing works is what's called a chiastic structure. Think of an X and then get rid of one half of the X. What you have left is Hebrew chiasm. And what comes at the center is the key dominant revelation that is supposed to go out like lightning to all the points away from the center and govern everything else that has been said. So what is happening in vision three and four really are the dominant theological revelation that is supposed to be carried into everything happening in the other visions. Well, what is the central controlling revelation? What is the key to the Lord's entire plan for the world? 
What is the essential turning point in the history of the kingdom of God? It is the justification of God's sinful people by the wisdom and the power of the cross. That's what it is. The servant work of the branch, the Messiah, in defeating sin is at the center of all that God is going to be doing. And this is how we know we are to apply God's gracious act of justifying Joshua to ourselves. The sweet exchange of filth for righteousness through the branch, that is God's plan for the whole world. And that's why you have John 3.16 in your Bible. When Paul says at the top of Romans chapter 1 that the gospel has been borne witness to by the law and the prophets, he is thinking of passages just like this. Not just Isaiah 53, but Zechariah chapter 3, among many others. But our text gives us a second, even more vivid reason for applying Joshua's justification to ourselves. Joshua is the high priest. This is key. That means he is the mediator. He is the representative of the people before the Lord. His priestly actions make the people of God acceptable to God. But before God, Joshua is covered with filth. The word for filth in Hebrew is the word for excrement and vomit. In fact, it's translated in other places in the Old Testament as those two words on different occasions. Joshua is covered with the most unclean thing that the Jews would have recognized belonged outside the camp. But it is a symbol of his sin. But here's the point. The situation is even worse than the filth on Joshua. Joshua's filth is not his own. Exodus 28 tells us that the high priest was always to approach the Lord with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel upon a breastpiece that was laid over the ephod. I'll read it to you, 28:29 of Exodus. He shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. Here's the point. It is not only Joshua who is filthy, but the people of God whom he represents. They are filthy. But if God is pleased to freely justify the high priest, it means he is pleased to justify the Jerusalem he has chosen, the remnant, the true people of God, the people for whom the branch will come into the world. Notice then what is said in verse 8 and 9. Joshua is told that he and his friends are a sign. Now, these friends of Joshua are likely men who are priestly attendants. They are probably in the work of serving the high priest. They are a sign, it says, of a future action of God's. What is the future action of which they are a sign? God's bringing his servant, the branch, into the world. But how is it that Joshua, the high priest, is a sign of this future action of God's? Well, he is a sign because his justification as an ungodly high priest 
is a just completed action of God's that foreshadows that action for which the branch is coming into the world as the great high priest. And what is that action for which the branch is coming into the world? To remove the iniquity, verse 9, of God's people on a single day. Meaning the justification of all God's chosen ungodly people will be fully ratified, completely paid for, justly finished on a single future day by the branch. And beloved, we live on the other side of that day. That day has come. Hebrews 7.27 tells us about that day. Hebrews 7.27 says that the old priest of Israel had to offer sacrifices daily. Not just one day, daily, yearly in the holy, holiest of holies. Why? For their own sins and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus, being without sin, offered himself once on one day for all when he offered up himself. That was the day iniquity was removed, the day in which God displayed his wisdom and power on the cross. Our justification is only taken from the treasury of Christ's merit. Let us understand this. The branch has to come for the justification of Joshua, the high priest, to be truly purchased and paid for. Joshua was justified in his lifetime. But that justification was ratified in the lifetime of Jesus of Nazareth on the cross of Christ. Now, there are a few more things to observe from our text as points of application. Number one, Satan's work is the work of accusation. Why is Satan in the courtroom of heaven? Well, the text says he's there as the accuser. He is there to destroy the people of God and unravel the plans of God. Satan is rebuked by the Lord, and the Lord says, this is Jerusalem whom I have chosen. But understand something. It is the work of Satan to accuse. Beloved, do not do the work of Satan. Get it out of your mouth. Get it out of your heart. The Christian church of Jesus Christ does not have a ministry of accusation. That is not why the church is in the world. To go and accuse people. We are most like the devil when we want to regard men only in their sins. Let me ask you, what is your vibe? What is your personal vibe as a Christian? Is your vibe this one? You are not as good as I am. Is that the kind of Christianity that you bring to the world? Letting people know that they are not as good as you are? Is that all your Christian faith has done for you? Made you feel better about yourself in a world of sinful, filthy men? 
Or is your vibe the, the vibe of the Apostle Paul? In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. 2 Corinthians 5.19. Yes, they have trespasses. Yes, they need to know they have trespasses. A lot of people are clueless that God regards them as filthy. They think they are as sweet as candy. But we see in the courts of heaven what we really are. Yes, we have to tell people. But we tell them in the context of the gospel that God has come in the world in Christ not to count their trespasses against them. What is our vibe? Is it that of Stephen the deacon? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Do you know who he said that to? And when he said it? When boulders and rocks were crashing down upon his skull and he was dying by execution, by men who hated Christ, he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. If the world and the wicked have anything to say about us at the end, may it be they say this, boy, they really wanted us to be forgiven. Beloved, accusation is the work of the devil. The gospel must permeate all of our teaching on the transgressions and sins of men. Why are we talking about sin if we are not wanting to follow it and set it upon cross in Christ? Where else do we have to set it then? Second point of application. Man's filth is not hidden from God. Man's filth is not hidden from God. Joshua's sin may have been hidden from Joshua. Joshua's sin may have been hidden from the people of Israel, Judah. But it was not hidden from God. And this vision in the heavenly courtroom is to be heard by all people everywhere of what man is apart from the justifying grace of God in Christ. Apart from having our guilt taken away and the pure righteousness of Christ put upon us, we are filthy before God. We must think rightly about who we are. Your joy in God will be directly proportional to your knowledge of your own sin. If you think you are a little sinner, you will regard Christ as a little savior. If you know that you are a sinner who is even filthier than you think, you will regard Jesus as a big savior. Your joy in God will be directly proportional to your knowledge of your own sin because you will see what a grace and a gift justification really is. What did our Lord Jesus say to the sinful woman who began washing his feet with her hair in Simon the Pharisee's house. He said to her, he actually said this to Simon, 
He who is forgiven little loves little. Simon had this much love for Jesus because he had this much knowledge of his filth. Don't ask me how it is Simon could read Zechariah 3 because he had this scripture. How he could know it backward and forward. He probably knew the word count in Hebrew. He probably knew the central, the center word of all the words in Zechariah. Don't ask me how he could read that over and over again and see Joshua the high priest regarded as filthy and somehow not regard himself as filthy. I don't know how that happened, but I know that it happens throughout the church of God throughout the ages. That men who should know who they are by reading the Bible come away from the Bible and they do not see themselves as sinners in it. They see the Bible simply patting them on the back for the lifestyle they are living that is filthy and foolish. Man's filth is not hidden from God. Even though we may cover it up, push it out of our minds, we may even write treatises and theses and doctoral dissertations in our head telling us that we act this way and we did this thing for these, these virtuous reasons. God will not be mocked. He knows our filth. He will not read our papers to excuse ourselves. Number three, sanctification follows justification. Look at verse 7 with me. Beloved, this is a verse about sanctification. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. The Lord first announces and declares Joshua's justification. And then, having declared his justification, he summons him to holiness of life, which is sanctification. Sanctification and justification can never be separated. A man whose sins have been forgiven, his guilt has been removed, the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to him, will begin a life of holiness. How do we know this? Because that man is united to only one other man who cannot be taken in parts, and that is Jesus Christ. The whole Christ, the Christ who justifies and the Christ who sanctifies, is united and given to the believer through the Holy Spirit by faith. But the act of a sinner being justified precedes the work of a sinner being sanctified. We must remember this order. And we must remember that both are of God's free grace. So we are put in possession of all the righteousness we need first. And then after that, we grow in holiness of life bit by bit. It is not holiness of life that somehow earns us our status of justification. We cannot earn anything with God. He justifies us fully and freely first, and then he presses us on into sanctification. The care of souls follows the same pattern. 
When we read the Apostle Paul's letters, we find that he first declares the indicatives. Those are statements of what God has done without regard to us. And then he declares the imperatives, where he tells the church what they must do now that they have received so much. This is Paul's whole order of his letters. Romans 1 through 11, indicatives. 12 through 16, imperatives. Notice the order. Ephesians 1 through 3, indicatives. 4 through 6, imperatives. It's right here in Zechariah 3. God's justifying grace. Then verse 7, walk in my ways, holiness of life. Now, this is the great wisdom of God. He knows our hearts, and he knows that even though these things happen instantaneously when we are united to Christ, he wants us to have a logical order so we do not get confused in our hearts. We are saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. It is always accompanied after by the good works of a newly justified man. Now listen carefully for a moment. If I ask my obedience to God to carry a weight it was never intended to carry, what happens when I realize how pathetic my obedience really is? By the way, you can tell me that later today. Pastor, your obedience is pathetic. You'll get a hearty amen out of me. Because the Lord looks for an inner man that's holy and an outer man that's holy. He doesn't want white grave boxes called sepulchers in the New Testament. But what happens, beloved, when I ask my obedience to carry a weight it was never intended to carry? What happens when I realize how pathetic my obedience is? I become bitter, I become irritated, and I become even more despondent toward God. That language from the Shorter Catechism about glorifying God and enjoying him forever becomes absolute noise to me. If I wanted my obedience to be the thing which maintained God's kindness toward me and his favor toward me, what happens when I realize my obedience is terribly stained, inconsistent, and shallow? Well, I will be beaten down. I will be beaten down again by the knowledge that I have not maintained God's kindness. I have not maintained his favor if my obedience was supposed to do that. Beloved, this is why Joshua the high priest is justified before verse 7. This is why the pattern and teaching of the apostles is indicatives before imperatives. This is why Jesus tells the lame man, your sins are forgiven. And then, in a few more minutes, he says, take up your mat and walk. He tells him to get back to work. Use your hands. Use your healing. But he first forgave his sins. Beloved, sanctification follows justification. Always. Lastly, justification of the ungodly creates a culture of invitation. Look at verse 10. In that day, what day is that? That's the day you and I are in right now. The New Testament calls it the last days, the fullness of time, the day of the Lord. 
the day upon which Christ has opened the fountain of the new covenant. We are in this day, the everlasting day of grace. It's reached its fulfillment and consummation in the death of Christ and his resurrection. Verse 10, in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. The neighbors spoken of there in verse 10 cannot be anyone different than the people spoken of in verse 11 of chapter 2. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day. <laughs> what is the Lord saying in verse 10? Well, we can't take verse 10 and set it aside without verses 1 through 9, right? What the Lord is saying is that the justification of the filthy creates a culture of invitation among the people of God who are so justified. Under his vine, under his fig tree, that is an Old Testament picture of tranquility. It is a picture of peace. It is a picture of hostilities have ended. A helpful scripture for this is 1 Kings 4.25. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. I know I can find no neighbor now who is more filthy before God than I was before God justified me in Christ's righteousness. That is the new prescription of the justified. You have no neighbor, no matter what they're doing or how they're living, you have no neighbor who is more filthy before God than you were before God justified you in Christ, which changes your disposition towards all your neighbors. Even though you now are set apart unto God and forgiven, and they are not, you have a deep compassion for where they are. And you want to invite them to where you are, under your vine, under your fig tree. I no longer think of my neighbors as proof of how good I am. I used to use them that way. I used to justify myself by being better than them on this or that or there. But now, because I've been justified, I no longer use my neighbors like that. I no longer use them to justify myself. I no longer need them to stay bad so I can justify myself as good. Now I invite them to the one who cleanses their filth. It frees us to welcome our neighbors instead of use their faults to establish our justification. Beloved, what you have heard this morning is a little lesson in the doctrine of justification. Justification is the very heart of the gospel. Martin Luther said, it is the linchpin upon which all religion rests. Calvin said, because he couldn't say that, it is the hinge upon which religion, true religion turns. Justification 
is the Lord God himself coming to filthy you and me and taking away our sin and guilt, pardoning it forever, and imputing the righteousness of Christ to us. Does this mean that we will now live like pardoned thugs, running further into sin because we have been justified? Of course not. Because we know now that we have been bought with a price. Our life is not our own. We belong to the one who gave us everything by giving all on the cross. And the wonderful news is that justification tells me my sin has not broken God's acceptance of me in Christ. But it also tells me that I have every power of heaven at my disposal because I am justified. I can now ask for everything I need to grow in holiness of life. I am reconciled to God's hand. And in his hand is stronger faith, quicker repentance, understanding of his law, everything that is in his hand. And his hand is no longer a fist to the center. It is open. Yes, scarred, but open. Let us pray. (coughs) Father, we thank you for this lesson from Zechariah 3. Bless it to us. Fasten it upon us. Make us responsible for its use in our life and our teaching, whether that is in the home or in our private secret heart. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.